If you believe you serve a great God this morning, say amen. 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 How many of you are familiar with the acronym DTR? Not many. Guys, let me help you. If if you're dating a, a lady, dating a girl, and she says to use the acronym DTR, your knees begin to get a little weak. You begin to... You begin to get scared because DTR stands for define the relationship. And so if somebody sends you the acronym DTR, they're wanting you to define the relationship. In other words, where do we go from here? Today, we're going to define the relationship. We're going to have that conversation with the Lord Jesus because I believe he's asking, where do we go Where do you stand? Where do we go from here? And just because you may have been a believer for years, for decades, doesn't mean that occasionally you don't need to stop and define the relationship. Stop and examine where you are and what it looks like and where you're headed from this point forward. You know, for a lot of you, you, guys, if the lady says DTR, define the relationship, and you say, I'm comfortable with the way things are. That is not the answer she's looking for, okay? All right, she's looking for commitment when she asks that. And so, so many of you, though, in your relationship with Christ, you would say, you know, I'm just comfortable with the way things are. That's not the answer that I think the Lord is looking for today. Because today, see, we want, we want a relationship with Jesus. We just want it on our terms, you know, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I'm going to follow you on my terms. I want, enough of the, I want enough of the Lord that I get the benefits of following Jesus without the sacrifice of following Jesus. So today, the DTR talk. In the Gospels, Jesus regularly called people to have these kinds of discussions. He called them to define the relationship of what it looks like. Um, the rich young ruler comes to him and says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And we looked at that a few weeks ago. And Jesus tells him, go sell everything you have and give it away and come follow me. And Jesus says, you want to know what the relationship looks like? Here's what it looks like for you because money and possessions are your God. And the Bible says he went away sad. In John 6, he begins to teach them about the Lord's Supper and what it's going to mean, what meaning it's going to take after his death. And And it says in verse 66 that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So he's defining what the relationship's going to look like, and they're like, no, I'm checking out. In John 4, the woman at the well, she wants the living water. Jesus defines what a relationship with him is going to look like. He says, you know, if if you get this water, you're never going to thirst again. Uh, Zacchaeus, right? Luke 19, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree because I'm going to your house today. Why? Because we're going to have a talk about what the relationship between you and I look like. We're going to define the relationship. Nicodemus came out at night in John chapter 3, had a discussion with Jesus, and Jesus defines what a relationship with him would look like. For Jesus, there's no such thing as casual commitment. I think that's an... That, that is a phrase that the modern church has come up with that does not exist in Scripture. There's no such thing as casual commitment with Jesus. I believe it's all or nothing. The word Lord means master, means Lord of everything. So in our text this, this morning, Jesus is going to have a define the relationship moment with three different men. 
Take your Bible and open it to Luke chapter 9. We're in a series called Radical, the Hard Sayings of Jesus. And to one of these men, Jesus is actually going to make a couple of hard sayings, but, but to one of these men, he says, let the dead bury their own dead. And that sounds like a hard saying. And we're going to see maybe that it doesn't mean what you think it means on the surface. And so Luke 9, beginning in verse 57, we'll read through to verse 62. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he, Jesus, said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead, be seated. What's the bottom line when it comes to following Jesus? Some of you know I bought a new truck last year. Went down to the Ford dealership because that's the only kind of trucks there are. And, um, uh, they, had, they had a base model, all right? And so the base model cost this much but I didn't want a base model truck I wanted a backup camera and the sync system and the chrome package and and so the sticker price from the base model to what I wanted let's just say there was just a little bit of sticker shock happening okay I'm afraid that when it comes to following Jesus when we look at the bottom line when we look at the sticker price sometimes we go through sticker shock because I'm convinced most Christians only want the base model. It's kind of like playing Monopoly, the get-out-of-jail-free card. Most, most people in churches today want a get-out-of-hell-free card. They want just enough of Jesus where they don't go to hell, but not enough where he's actually going to radically change their life. Most churches today don't advertise the full cost of discipleship. Why don't preachers preach the full cost of discipleship? Easy, it doesn't draw a crowd. You know, if you really talk about selling out to Jesus and this is what it looks like, it turns a lot of people off because people don't want that kind of a commitment. And, and those churches that don't emphasize that, they have lots of attenders but few disciples. In, in the Gospels, Jesus called the most unqualified unlikely. If, if they had class yearbooks back then, the guys who he called to be disciples would have been voted, if they had made it to their senior year, the most unqualified and, and uh, undeserving of being a disciple of a rabbi. He called fishermen. He called a tax collector who was the chief sinner in that town. He, he called a zealot whose, whose theory, his, if he had a bumper sticker, it would have said, make war, not love. You know, that's what zealots were about. Uh, he called a doubter by the name of Thomas. So he called these unqualified, uneducated people. Thousands wanted to be around Jesus, but few wanted to be a disciple. They wanted the dog and pony show. Lord, show us a sign. Do a miracle. You know, feed the 5,000. Heal the demoniac. You know, let, let, let's, see some, let's see some action, Lord. But they didn't want the calls of discipleship. And I think it's a lot of... I mean, there are a lot of churches today that people attend for the entertainment value. You know, entertain me. Give me the show, and then I'll go. Jesus isn't looking today for a crowd. He's looking for the committed. 
looking for the committed. Let's talk about these three guys. And as we look at each one of them, we're going to talk about the misunderstanding because they all had a misunderstanding. And then we're going to talk about what the, uh, the, the message really means and what the meaning of it is for us today. Man number one is the man I say he did not calculate the cost. He didn't calculate the cost here. Now, we don't know their names. None of the three, we, we know their names. We don't know much about them. But this first guy, if you read Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 8, this first guy, Matthew calls a scribe. Now, sometimes the word scribe gives us a misunderstanding. We think of a scribe as someone who copies things. And so we think maybe he's a guy who was copying down scrolls. That's not what... Scribe was used over 50 times in the Gospels, and that's not what it meant. It's usually paired with the Pharisees. It would have been a religious or a political affiliation. It, it would have been somebody who's living the high life, okay? And most of the time, they were trying to trap Jesus. But there's no reason to doubt this guy's sincerity. Because he comes up and he says, Lord. That's the Greek word kurios, which is, it means Lord or Master. And so there doesn't seem to be any pretense about him. There doesn't seem to be any conniving going on. He just comes up to him and he says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm willing to do it. Jesus studies the man and he looks at him and he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. There's a lot of discussion about Jesus' answers to these men. Let's talk about the misunderstanding here. Jesus is not requiring that you and I live a life of poverty. A lot of people read this and say, okay, so when Jesus says he didn't have a place to lay his head, that we, we then should live a life of poverty because Jesus says he didn't own stuff, we shouldn't own stuff. Now, there are Christians who take vows of poverty. Nuns, priests, they take a vow of poverty. But in the entirety of the Gospels, only one time to one person does Jesus say, go and sell everything you have, give it away, and follow me. And the reason he told that man that was because his God was his wealth and his possessions. And he said, I, I need to be your God if you're going to follow me. I need to be number one preeminent in your life. Poverty is not a New Testament requirement to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. There's always been wealthy people who supported the cause of Christ. I mean, the scripture says it was a rich man who donated the tomb for Jesus to be temporarily buried in. Scripture calls him rich, and, and he gives up the tomb. Jesus didn't need, he didn't need to buy it. He just needed to borrow it for three days. He wasn't staying in there for very long. And so Joseph gives him the tomb. 1 Timothy 6, Paul doesn't tell Timothy, hey, tell everybody at the church of Ephesus to get, to get rid of all of their stuff Give all their money away. That's not what he says. He tells Timothy, tell them that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, don't put their trust in their money. He doesn't say it's wrong to have money. He just says, don't make that your God. Don't make that your focus. So the misunderstanding is that we are called to live a life of poverty. Here's the meaning. Jesus does require at times that we set aside some of life's pleasures. That's the, that's the uh, meaning for us, that we have to set aside some of life's pleasures. Jesus didn't tell the man to sell everything. He said, make some adjustments in your life. Set aside some of your life's pleasures to follow me. You ever thought about how many Bible characters were called to set aside some of life's pleasures to, to follow the Lord God? Abraham in Genesis. 
Abraham, you're a wealthy man. He was wealthy family. Pack up your family and move. Okay, God, where am I going? And God says, I'll tell you when you get there. And he does. I mean, he, he left life's pleasures to follow God. I mean, we could go through Scripture. Moses, he left being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter to stand with his people, moved to the desert, and then had to leave the pleasures of the desert. You say, well, what pleasure is that? It beats going back to the most powerful man in the world and telling him, God says, let my people go. And, and so to follow him, he had, to follow God, he had to let go of some of life's pleasures. Noah, Noah had a good life, and he had to leave the comfort of that took him 120 years to build the ark and he was a preacher of righteousness and the people ridiculed him. Daniel was in the king's court but he had to leave the pleasures of the king's court. Why? Because he prayed. He believed in praying to the Lord God and his prayers got him in trouble. People turned him in and he got put in the lion's den. David, David left the comfort of the sidelines to fight Goliath. David shows up and there's this nine-foot Philistine out there saying, you bunch of yellow-bellied cowards. That's kind of the paraphrase. But, but he, he's telling them, send somebody out here to fight me. It's a winner-take-all. You win, we surrender. I win, you surrender. And nobody would go out. And David says, I'll go. And they tried to put armor on him, and it was too big. He couldn't even wear it. So this little shepherd boy goes out with a slingshot and stones. Talk about leaving aside some of life's pleasures in order to follow God fully. Peter, after he failed, went back to fishing. That's the comfortable thing. That was what he found pleasure in. But when Jesus restores him to follow God, he had to lay aside life's pleasures. And ultimately, he would be crucified upside down for preaching Christ. And it was upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die the same way his Lord did. Jesus, Jesus left the pleasures of heaven to come to earth to fully follow the Father's plan. So here's the message. What does it mean for you and I? Jesus is telling us to trust him with our present, to trust him with what's going on right here today. This guy says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, really? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, I can't tell you always where you're going to sleep at night. I can't always tell you what you're going to eat, but the question is, will you trust me? Compared to most people, even in his day, but today, Jesus would have lived a life of poverty. He wasn't born in a hospital. He wasn't born with a midwife. He was born in a barn, a sheep's pen, all right? When he tells this man, I don't have a home to go to. I don't know where I'm sleeping every day. We would call Jesus homeless because that's what he was he didn't have a steady place to stay but he never missed a meal never never do we see him having to sleep outside I think the, the implication is everywhere he went folks would invite him in and take care of his needs but he was so poor he needed the money out of a fish's mouth to pay his taxes he was so poor he had to borrow a coin to show them what it looked like in order to say render unto Caesar what is Caesar unto God's what is God's he needed to borrow a tomb for a temporary burial. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Most of us would be, able to un be unable to function the way Jesus did on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm just being honest here. I don't know that I could do it. 
I don't know that I could not have a place to lay my head and not have a time when I didn't have just a little bit of cash or at least a debit card in my pocket. You know, I, I couldn't live the way Jesus did. But when you think about it, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, give us this day our what? Daily bread. What he was doing is he's saying, trust God with your presence. Present. Don't worry about tomorrow. It's kind of like manna in the Old Testament. If they collected more than enough manna for one day, it would spoil. In other words, God was saying, every day you have to trust me with your present. Trust me with what's going on in your life right here, right now. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then Jesus says, Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So the man who didn't count the cost didn't calculate the cost let's talk secondly about the second man the man who put other concerns first he tells jesus i want to be a disciple i just don't want to be a disciple right now i want to go home and bury my father and as we read this in the 21st century we are stunned by what jesus says jesus says follow me and let the dead bury their own dead here's the misunderstanding Jesus is not requiring that we leave our family at a very pivotal moment. It sounds like this guy's dad has died, and he wants to go home and bury him, and Jesus is saying, no, don't worry about that. Let somebody else bury him if you're going to follow me. That's not what's going on here. Jesus wasn't being kind or uncruel. Remember in the first century, there really wasn't embalming as we knew it, and so if, if somebody died, they would be buried within the first 24 hours. They wouldn't, let, they wouldn't let them sit long because the body would begin to decay and stink, all right? And so it's not that this guy's dad had died. This was a way in the first century of saying, let me go home, and when my father dies, when the patriarch of the family dies, I'll follow you. Could have been next week. Could have been 50 years from now. What he was saying is, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I'm not going to follow you until my dad dies, and who knows when that will be. That's really what he's saying here. Jesus says, let those who are spiritually dead bury those who physically die. So here's the meaning. Jesus does require that we not procrastinate, that we not put it off. There's no evidence of Jesus ever in the gospel saying, follow me next week, follow me next year. It was always follow me, exclamation point. In other words, the implication was Jesus was saying, follow me right here, right now. He told James and John, leave the nets, leave the boats, and follow me. And it says immediately they got out of the boat, and they followed him. That's, that's what Jesus is calling for. Some of you have been putting off selling out to Jesus. You know you need to, but you've been putting it off. I was going to preach on procrastination, but I decided to wait. That'll come to some of you here in just a minute. The text, this man offers an excuse for not following Jesus right then. I, I want to follow you, but I want to wait until my dad dies first. Adrian Rogers, the late Adrian Rogers, pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis for years, was one of my heroes of the faith. Got to meet him one time and was so excited. He tells the story of sitting in on a women's Bible study class. He used to, 
as large as that church was, he would go sit in on different Sunday school classes and just kind of just observe, hear the teacher teach. And he went to this women's class, and, and this, very, this very educated, very elegant, very articulate lady was teaching the class, and she taught the entire class, he said, around the word but, B-U-T. And she talked about how it was a, a powerful negative contraction. And she pointed out that most of the time when the word but is used, it always cancels out what was said before that. For instance, he said that she said, I would tithe, but I can't pay my bills. I would, church, I would serve in church, but... I'm going to be gone several weeks out of the year. I would be at church this Sunday, but I have company coming in. In fact, Dr. Rogers said she got, she got so fired up teaching that lesson. She was excited. At one point, she looked at him and she said, Pastor, I just wish we could kick all of the butts out of our church. <laughs> As only Dr. Rogers could do. He sat there for a moment. And then he looked at her and he said, okay, you take names and I'll kick butts. <laughs> but she made her point. Her point was we can't cancel out something just because we don't necessarily want to do it. And that's what this guy did. So here's the message for us today. The message is, is Jesus tells us to trust him with our plans, to trust him with our plans. How many of us are like this man? We, we want to make our own plans and then ask Jesus to adjust to them. All right, God, so here's what I'm going to do. Now, I want you to adjust what you want out of my life based on what I've decided I'm going to do. Jesus told him, drop your plans and follow me. i give you an example. And I won't ask you to raise your hand. But many of you are college educated or technical school educated. How many of you actually, and again, don't, don't raise your hand, but how many of you actually prayed and said, God, what is it you want me to do with my life? Or did you actually choose something you thought you would like to do and then told Jesus, now adjust your will around my plans? Jesus tells us to trust him with our plans. Now, some of you would say that this application is more meaningful the younger you are. I don't think so. Regardless of our age, we should be following him more faithfully now than we have before. Now, a lot of you are like me. You have more life behind you than you do in front of you. Unless I live to be 114, which I seriously doubt, then more of life is behind me than is in front of me. So does that mean that I can just rest? No. See, a lot of times when, as we age, we, we live life in the past, looking in the rearview mirror at the good old days. Friend, as long as you are alive, listen to me now, as long as you are alive, the good old days are still ahead of you. I mean, even if you're about to die, heaven's going to be better than this, and so I don't care the context. As long as you're here, the good old days are still ahead of you. Your most effective days of service could be right now. Moses was 80 years old when God called him to do his most significant work, to go to Pharaoh. 80. And so don't say, don't say I'm too old. Trust God with your plans. Make his, trust him with plans. 
you know, rearview mirrors are nice, but they only show a small spectrum of what's behind you. I mean, go out and look in your car when you get ready to leave and look in the rearview mirror. You're not going to see everything that's going to be behind you, behind you. You're just going to see a small sliver of what's behind you. And if you drive looking, out, looking through your rearview mirror, you're going to crash, okay? And if you live life looking back at the past, you're going to crash. God has a windshield of blessings in front of you, and he says, listen, look, out the, look where you're going, not where you've been. Trust me with your plans for the future. The best is yet to come. You ever notice how the price of things keeps going up? I did a little research, and I went back to 1963 because that was close to the year that I was born, and it was also the year I could find the numbers for. All right? So 55 years ago, a new home, the median price for a home in America was $17,200. This year, the median home price is $313,000. 18.2 times what it was 55 years ago. 1963, the, new cost, the cost of a new car was $3,233. Friend, I'd have paid cash for my truck. I wouldn't have financed anything if, if that was the cost of a new vehicle today. But the cost of a median, the median cost of a car, we're not talking luxury, we're not talking economy class, we're talking the middle price of a car today is 34200 10.6 times what it was 55 years ago. 1963, the cost of a gallon of gas was 25 cents. Only if you have 2,500 Kroger points are you going to get gas for 25 cents a gallon today. All right? The average price on Thursday across America was $2.86, 11.44 times what it cost 55 years ago. Now listen to me, friend. Why do I tell you that? Because the cost of following Jesus is unchanged for 2,000 years. It costs the same today to follow Jesus as it did 2,000 years ago. You say, what's it cost, preacher? It costs you everything. Everything. Always has. Nothing's changed. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, die to self, follow me. Let's talk about the third guy, the man who would not cast aside other pursuits. This guy volunteers in verse 61. He says, Lord, count me in. I'll follow you, but there's that powerful negative contraction, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Sounds like a reasonable idea. I mean, Lord, just let me go home, say goodbye. I'll follow you, but let me go home, tell everybody, hey, I'm out of here, I'm following Jesus from now on. Again, Jesus' answer in verse 62 seems harsh. No one having putting it, put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's the misunderstanding. Jesus does not call us to part fully from our family. Did Jesus completely disengage from his family? No. In fact, on the cross, one of the very last things he did was he told his mother, here's John. John's going to take care of you from this day forward. So he didn't completely disengage from his family, and he's not telling this guy, hey, just forget about your family. Here's the meaning. Jesus does require that he be our priority. That's the meaning, that, that he be our priority. As Jesus talked about plowing, everybody would have understood what he was talking about. 
Go ahead and put that next slide up for me if you would. Thanks. Our priority. As he talks about plowing, most of us don't get it because we've never plowed. I'm not the son of a farmer or farmer myself. Been a city slicker all my life, okay? I don't know a whole lot about it. When we helped, when we helped that young man who about cut off his thumb about 12 years ago, I learned that you don't plant tobacco, you set tobacco. I didn't know that. All I, you know, all I knew is we're putting stuff in the dirt, all right? Um, but Jesus is very clear. He says, if you put your hand to the plow, you don't look back. Why? Because you're going to have a crooked row. You're going to be distracted by things that are behind you. Something may come up behind you that takes you away from plowing. You might look back and say, oh, well, that's interesting. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go hang out with that person. And Jesus is saying that he has to be our priority. You know, here in church today, we'd say we love a lot of things. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. I love pizza. I love ice cream. I love sports. I love, uh, I love my little six-pound killer dog. All right? But let me ask you, we say we love these things, but do they all carry the same equal weight? I hope not. If you have grandkids, I hope you love them more than you do pizza or ice cream. Okay? We can say we love things, but they carry different weight. Jesus is saying that if you love me, I need to be the first priority in your life. That's why he tells the church at Ephesus in Revelation 3, he says, you have left your first love. What was it? They had left following Jesus. He demands, he requires that he be our priority. This guy says, Lord, I'll follow you, but first. What but first do you have in your life? Lord, I'll serve you, but first. Lord, you, you know I want to follow you fully, but first. So here's the message for you and I. Jesus tells us to trust him with our purpose. Why did God create you? Do you know that God created you for a purpose? God makes no accidents. And everybody here, God has a purpose for your life. Do you know what God's purpose is? One of the reasons I think the divorce statistics are such to where uh, it seems that first marriages, one out of every two first marriages this year will end up sometime in divorce. Why is that? Because couples don't pray about who they should marry. You'd be surprised how many couples I've done premarital counseling with, and I'll ask them, y'all prayed about this? Well, no, preacher, we just love one another. <laughs> yeah, that and a buck fifty will buy you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. Ruth, the late Ruth uh, Bell Graham said she would have married the wrong man three times if God had left it up to her. But she prayed, and three different times God said, no, that's not the right guy. And she ultimately married Billy Graham. What about your career? Did you pray about what career you have? God has a purpose for your life. Now, your purpose may be, not everybody's called to be in the ministry, but every person is called to be a minister. See, because many of you, God's purpose for you is to be a teacher, his purpose for you is to sell insurance or to be a banker or whatever. Okay, police officer, fireman, work in a factory. Here's the thing, though. You get exposed to people every day that will never come talk to me. If they find out I'm a Baptist preacher, not only will they not come talk to me, they don't want me coming talking to them. But you have opportunity every day to see those people, to interact with them. And, and so God has a purpose for you. 
And you need to trust him with that purpose. Will you allow me to be personal for a moment? I don't, I don't often talk personally like this, but I just want to be personal for a minute. When I told the Lord I would follow him and his purpose for my life into ministry, it had some ramifications. When you tell God you will follow him, there's some cost involved, okay? One of the costs was I had to abandon a purpose that I had in my heart since I was a little boy. I had always, I don't know, I don't know where the thought came from, but I had always wanted to be a U.S. senator. True story. I, I went to Florida State University, having never been to Tallahassee before, only because the state capitol was there, and I wanted, to, I wanted to make relationships with people in political circles so that I could make friends that would hopefully help me in the future. That was my purpose, I thought. God had a different purpose. I had to move hundreds of miles away from family. All of my family was in Florida, and I had to move to Fort Worth, Texas to pursue an education. It meant not living next door or in the same town as my parents. It meant my children not getting to see their grandparents every day, but getting to see them two or three times a year at best for a few days. Now, I tell you that not for pity at all. I'm just trying to point out that for everyone, now the sacrifice and the cost may not be the same, but for every one of us to follow Jesus, there is a sacrifice and cost involved. It means telling Jesus, I will do whatever you want me to do, and I will go wherever you want me to go to do it. Let me wrap this thing up. What did these three guys decide? What did they do? What did each one of them do? We don't know. Why, why doesn't Jesus tell us? Because that's not the point. The point is not what did they do, how did they respond. The point is what will you do? How will you respond to the claims and to the call that Jesus places on your life? Today, Jesus is asking some of you to leave your comfort zone to follow him. What's that look like? For some of you, you have never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And for you to follow him is going to require that you make a profession of your faith. That you say, I am putting my faith in Jesus Christ. For others of you to follow him, he is telling you, the cost is you need to put down some spiritual roots. You are a spiritual nomad. You have floated from church to church, and God is telling you now, put down some roots. Join a church, plug in, serve, be a part. For others of you, he's calling you to say, for you to follow me, it's the same thing as it was for Pastor Tom. I'm calling you into a life of ministry, maybe as a missionary, maybe as a, a preacher, maybe as a youth pastor, as an education, music leader, whatever. But God is calling some of you today to make the sacrifice of serving in ministry. What's Jesus saying is necessary for you to follow him? Can I just be honest with you? Eastwood has plenty of members. We really don't need members. What we need are disciples. We don't have enough disciples. Got enough members. But we need more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Will you be a disciple today? If not, why not? 
What's, what's holding you back? What's the but? Lord, I thank you for this word from your word, and I thank you for the story of these three men, each coming with various goals and aspirations and uh, Jesus making claims on each of their lives. Lord, I'm grateful that you didn't tell us what these guys decided because I really don't believe that the inclusion of their story in scriptures about what they decided, but more about what those who would come along behind them decide. And so God, I pray for us today. As the Holy Spirit has made clear what it is he's calling us to do, I pray that we be obedient. That we would say, Lord Jesus, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to do it, I'll follow you. Lord, now as your spirit has drawn, I pray that our obedience would be found pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.